Hello, I'm Maurice Mendoza at Judge Business School, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Professor Arnaud Domea, who is Director of Judge Business School and a Professor of Management Studies. Professor Domea's research focuses, amongst other areas, on manufacturing and technology strategy and how innovation can be managed more effectively. Today we are here to discuss Professor Domea's research into the way multinationals organize their global manufacturing networks. Professor Domea, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So to, to start off, uh, perhaps you could give the listeners some background into uh, why this research was started, what you hope to discover from it. Um, this research started actually more than 10 years ago uh, in the middle of the 90s when I worked together with a uh, doctoral student uh, who is now a professor at uh, the Vlerik School in Belgium, Professor Anne Vereke, um, and where we were interested whether uh, there was still a future for manufacturing in Europe. Um, this was even before uh, the time that uh, China and India were taking off as uh, countries where a lot of production was moving towards. Uh, but we asked ourselves the question, is there a future for plants, for manufacturing, for factories in Europe? Um, very soon, uh, when we started to do our first interviews, we came to the conclusion that uh, if there was a future for manufacturing in Europe, that it had to do something with knowledge creation. And so Anne and myself went out to um, figure out uh, with a number of companies uh, how they thought about their manufacturing networks, what the role was of different plants, how they thought about um, the mission of a particular plant in a particular country, etc. And we did a very rigorous study, um, rigorous in the sense that we interviewed a lot of people uh, in about eight organizations uh, with about 58 plants, uh, mainly European organizations. Very quickly, we discovered that uh, when people were thinking about manufacturing, that they were thinking about four types of flows uh, of, yeah, flows. Uh, one of materials, which is an obvious one. There is also a flow of capital. Uh, there is a flow of people. But then there seems to be also a lot of uh, knowledge flows. Uh, knowledge seemed to move around in these networks. And so we focused our attention on uh, Given these management flows, what can be different roles of factories? And through our uh, analysis of these 58 plants in these uh, eight organizations, we came quite quickly to the conclusion that you could figure out that there were four different types of factories. There were very simple um, factories where you, that you used because it was a low-cost production site. It was an, um, a site that uh, had no real knowledge production. Can I just ask, at that point, what do you, can you just elaborate on what you mean by knowledge in this context? It is a combination of um, codified and tacit knowledge. Codified knowledge about production processes on how you do things, a deep understanding of what the product is and how you can produce and move around that product. Uh, as I said, it's codified knowledge, uh, and usually you find it in standard operating procedures of the firm. You may find that in some of the intellectual property of the firm, etc. But in many cases, it's a little bit like cooking also. There's a lot of tacit knowledge, uh, knowledge that cannot be expressed in drawings, in specifications, but is deeply ingrained in the people's ability to do that. And not only in people's ability, but or in the individual's ability, but in the ability of the whole group of uh, people that work for that organization. We often talk, talk about organizational knowledge as opposed to individual knowledge. And so we discovered that there was a lot of that tacit organizational knowledge 
the way we do things in this firm, the way we approach problems, uh, things we know that seemed so obvious to us in this firm, but that the other one, uh, other people outside our firm don't seem to uh, to appreciate. Um, that's what we mean by non-codified knowledge or tacit knowledge. And some plants had more um, more of a capacity to generate knowledge, to take in information from other places, factories within the network, and and to disperse information throughout. That is precisely uh, what we observed. That is, uh, some factories didn't seem to use at all knowledge or took a blueprint and worked with it. Uh, some factories were very good at receiving this knowledge. Um, they were very good at digesting, in a sense, and growing a little bit, improving themselves a little bit, with, but always with knowledge that would come from somewhere else. Uh, other, if it comes from somewhere else, there must be somebody who is producing it. So there were other fa factories that seemed to be very good in uh, exploring new issues, exploring difficulties, coming up with solutions, and then uh, sharing those solutions with the rest of the world. Uh, so you, you saw basically two major groups, the factories that were not producing knowledge for the rest of the organization, and the factories that were producing knowledge for the rest of the organization. In each of these two categories, we have two subcategories in a sense, and we come to four different groups of factories. And then you returned to the same companies uh, 10 years later to see what they had done, and obviously things had changed uh, a great deal. Can you explain what you found? Yeah, we published uh, the model that I just described of uh, knowledge receivers and knowledge producers. Um, and uh, we also said about 10 years ago that we could probably predict uh, that uh, factories that were knowledge producers that were um, network players, as we sometimes call them also, would have probably much more stability, would uh, exist for a much longer time, while the knowledge receivers and the isolated plants uh, would probably be uh, easy to move e around or easy to close down, etc. We had predicted that, but that like many academics, you make a prediction and then you forget about it. Uh, but for an interesting uh, reason, uh, about uh, a year or two ago, um, both Anvarek and myself, we sort of sat together and said, but hey, we made a prediction 10 years ago, maybe it would be good to go back to these organizations and find out whether these factories still exist. It was also a little bit because we had a conversation uh, about, uh, is there still a future for manufacturing today in Europe? Um, has not all manufacturing moved out of Europe, etc.? So we went back to these plants, sorry, to these the companies, and actually to our great surprise, we saw that the eight organizations that we had worked with before were all very successful. Uh, in fact, we find now more than 80 plants worldwide for this, these same companies. Uh, however, two uh, major evolutions have taken place. First of all, uh, the move from 58 to 82 is an expansion, but that expansion is mainly uh, in um, East Asia and in India. In other words, uh, there is a strong internationalization beyond Europe of these plants. And secondly, uh, we could observe indeed that some of the predictions we had made about the flexibility of closing down or opening up new plants actually was true. What we saw that is that, and now I speak in more general terms, uh, if you are interested, I can show you the, the details and the numbers, but what we saw is that most of the flexibility had 
been at the level of factories that were not knowledge producers. And it is these factories that had been closed down in Europe, had moved eventually away to other places, mainly low-cost production uh, sites, uh, etc. Uh, but we saw also that the knowledge-producing plants had had a much higher stability and actually were able to defend their competitiveness within a European or a North American environment. Uh, in other words, they were able to uh, resist the temptation to uh, move all to low labor cost countries. We did observe, however, something equally interesting when we asked the question about why did you move to China? Why did you move to India? Or why did would you move somewhere else? And we had expected that most companies would answer us with, well, it's because of cost reasons. It's cheaper to do uh, the work there. But what we observed actually was that that was not true. That in many cases, some of these uh, receiver plants, the plants that receive information, moved to East Asia because that's where the market is. And uh, overall, we have to say that most of the expansion that we saw in these eight organizations has actually to do with uh, moving to new markets. Uh, creation of new factories has to do with being close to markets. Can you say uh, a little more about knowledge, uh, the knowledge player or the network players? Why do they come into existence? Um, I mean, in many ways you would think uh, most factories would want to be like that. It sounds more dynamic. It sounds like they're contributing to a greater degree to the organization's future. Um, but some do, some don't. Why, why, why is that? First of all, uh, why is a factory a network player and is a producer of knowledge? Uh, what we saw in many cases is that uh, the mother plant, the original factory of an organization, is obviously an a place where a lot of knowledge is created. However, we noticed also that some other plants, sometimes actually quite small and new plants, were created uh, to tap in new sources of knowledge or to produce new knowledge. Actually, some of the most sophisticated uh, knowledge producers, to put it that way, were actually factories that were actually relatively new and created for that purpose. So, when you look from a certain uh, distance at it, you see that there seems to be a visible hand, that somebody's trying to manage this process. And that's one of the things that we also uh, uh, teach when we discuss uh, the results of this, uh, of this research is that, in fact, as a senior um, manufacturing or production or technology vice president who is in charge of uh, the production organization of, an organi of a company, you should keep some flexibility in the system. You want to have a portfolio of different types of plans because if everybody is a uh, network player and everybody is a knowledge producer, you can't close down plans anymore. Uh, you want, as a manager who oversees the whole portfolio of factories, you want to keep some flexibility in the system. And that's the reason why you can see that uh, clever senior managers will stop sometimes the evolution of a receiver or blueprint plant into a knowledge producer. They will put uh, hurdles in place. As a manager of a plant, you always have the ambition to grow because you know that the more you become a knowledge producer, the more difficult it will be to close you down. Uh, in other words, the, the safer your job is going to be in the long run. But at the level of the organization, there is clearly a visible hand that says, we need to have a portfolio of plants, we need to have the flexibility, and at the same time, we need to have the knowledge production. If you have decided a plant is going to be a networking player, 
is it something you then say, well, okay, this is, we will encourage this, we will give the people the time to develop, or do you have to do something from the central point of view, the management point of view, to provoke it into becoming uh, a knowledge? From my perspective, you have to do three things. First of all, you have to build in some slack for experimentation. You cannot produce knowledge unless you give people the ability to make experiments, to learn from these experiments, to conceptualize from these experiments, and to produce the knowledge that we were talking about. The second um, uh, action you have to take is to ensure that you have the right type of people in there. Um, uh, I uh, often compare it in, uh, by saying uh, there are people that love to have uh, railways that run on time and where there is never an accident and where everything is repetitive and that's somebody that you would put in an, uh, a blueprint plant. Other people like to experiment, perhaps create a little accident, see what's, happen what, what's going wrong and if we change some of the parameters and have a talent and an, uh, a propensity to actually uh, create these experiments and learn from it. So it's the type of people that you recruit in there. And third uh, action you have to think about is incentives. Um, if uh, you award, reward people only on the basis of output and costs, they will not learn a lot because they will have not the time or the, not, neither the time nor the incentive actually uh, to learn. On the other hand, if you want to have a knowledge producing plant, you need to ensure that people know that in their bonuses at the end in the year of the year, in their performance appraisal, the knowledge production and the knowledge sharing will be taken into account. And how do you, uh, or, or can you give a sense of the impact of having um, a good, strong base of knowledge uh, factories within your network? Because obviously, um, as you've shown, it provides competitive, competitive advantage because it makes companies more innovative within that system. Do you, do you have any examples of how that's, transpired? Well, some of the companies that we describe, and uh, some of them have well-known um, uh, brand names such as Samsonite or Tupperware, uh, others are less well-known because they are uh, um, industrial companies that are in the business-to-business -business, uh, uh, activity, such as a company called Callabout and that is in chocolate, but check chocolate on a business-to-business level. Uh, these are companies that really have that portfolio of um, uh, factories. And in a sense, our research is an indication of the fact that if you can have a portfolio of knowledge producers and knowledge consuming factories, that actually that gives you stability and, uh, and a chance for survival. The fact that all eight organizations that we studied in 2005 still exist, sorry, in 1995, still existed in 2005, is an indication of the fact that having these knowledge producers actually guarantees you long-term sustainability. Um, it's also interesting to see, and we haven't made a thorough study of that, but that if you take some of the uh, factories in China or companies in China that were in the mobile phone business and who were nothing but copiers of mobile phones as they were produced by Nokia or others, have since long left that business again because they have no sustainable uh, competitive advantage uh, because they didn't have specific knowledge either about the product or about how the product is produced. And they were playing solely on their competitive advantage based on low cost labor. But when that disappears, or with, when somebody comes out with an innovation where cost is perhaps less important, you lose very quickly your position in the market. So producing knowledge is really a source of long-term uh, sustainability uh, for a, an organization. And is there any sense uh, for, for those listening who 
maybe haven't worked out exactly how they they consciously organise these kinds of things. Um, how many knowledge factories would you tend to need in, in say, percentage terms inside your network? That is a very difficult question to answer because it really depends a little bit on the business in which you are. If you are in mass-produced, uh, high-volume consumer goods, where cost is a very important um, element in the acquisition by the consumer, um, it's clear that you need to have lots of um, very efficiently organized knowledge receivers in different places in the world where the markets are. You still need probably a few very sophisticated knowledge producers so that they can fuel the whole of the network with their ideas. But the relationship there will probably be uh, a massive number uh, of factories that are knowledge ex uh, consumers and a few uh, factories that are knowledge producers. If, on the other hand, you are in a business where your product is a sophisticated business B2B type of product, where what you offer are solutions uh, as opposed to products, where services and amenities play an equally important role in selling your product as the product itself, uh, you probably will need a lot of knowledge around the product. And that's where knowledge producing factories become a much more important uh, element of your strategy and where perhaps the balance shifts towards quite a few knowledge producing factories, a few producers that only take the knowledge. So for those executives who haven't yet uh, studied your research and haven't quite uh, figured out the need to uh, examine all this, in this to this level of detail, what would you say to them? Where do they start? First of all, with the regularization that there is a future for manufacturing in a high cost or a high labor cost environment. Uh, those people who say uh, all manufacturing will disappear out of Europe, out of Japan or out of the United States are very wrong. Two, it is clear that uh, the advantage of a sophisticated environment like the United Kingdom or continental Europe or Japan, the advantage is clearly one of knowledge production. So you probably will end up with smaller factories that try to suck up all the knowledge that is available in the environment that can be in, translated between the knowledge that is available in the environment, such as the University of Cambridge, and uh, the uses of that, in, uh, that knowledge somewhere else in the world. It does mean, however, that these factories here in Europe or in Japan, have a very important task of constantly renewing themselves. They cannot become uh, lazy or uh, uh, they cannot leave it to uh, the chance that some knowledge will be produced. They have to be um, uh, very um, effective and uh, very. Uh, they make, have to make a very strong investment in uh, knowledge production, in saying we're here to constantly renew ourselves, to constantly change ourselves. Uh, it's a tougher life than having a nice, well-run factory that doesn't change over the years, that only has to produce a product at a low cost, every day the same product. It's tougher to be in the business of change, to be in the business of innovation. But that's where our future lies. And uh, a third comment that I would make is, um, if you want to set up uh, such a factory, uh, make sure that within your organization, the manufacturing function is seen as an important one, uh, not something that is sort of an afterthought that you do after you've 
done the design of your product and the marketing of the product, but where you say, we will we'll take this manufacturing function as an equal partner in sort of the, uh, the interaction that happens between the different functions within an organization. Professor de Meyer, thank you very, very much for your insights.